There are some suggestions that some inflammatory bowel diseases we can improve with fecal transplant. One of the interesting things, and you're alluding to this, sometimes, for example, you can actually transplant obesity from a donor to the recipient. And so you could have someone who is very skinny, and now you do a fecal transplant, and now that patient not only gets cured of their C. diff, but they could gain 20 pounds. Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. Today I'm super excited because we're going to talk about the gut microbiome and how it relates to possibly cancers and inflammation and basically all the things that people have been wanting to know but have a lot of trouble finding, including myself. And I couldn't be more excited about having Dr. Sandeep Patel from UC San Diego, where he's, he is a professor of oncology, to talk to us about those things. I met Dr. Patel when we were both filming for a news piece, I believe for CNBC. Uh, is that right, Dr. Patel? And I just thought you were so cool. Well, likewise, and so it's great to meet you, great to join you, and if it's okay, maybe we go by first name basis. I feel I know yes, you that Yes, I would well. love that. I appreciate that, too. I, I saw you when I walked in. You were filming your part, and I was like, oh, like, who's this guy? You know, whatever. Didn't get to listen. You came out, and you just started speaking, and you just started sharing all these things about, like, engineered foods and how kind of, you know, they're actually edible and proteins, and I think I learned about that and Einstein and relativity all within 30 seconds, and I was just fascinated. So I was like, can you please be on my podcast? Though with all due expect, respect, I think John Hood actually gave us the time relativity talk, so we should, I want to give credit where credit's due. Brilliant. That's true. Brilliant he was, it was, it was uh, three wise men in that, in that building. Well, uh, two wise men and then me. But today, I, you know, hopefully we have time to talk about those things, but the reason I was really excited is because a lot of people want to know, and especially on my social media, I've seen it a lot, what and how does what you eat play a role of course, into cancer, and, and we've talked about some of those things like in the past with red meats and things like that, but really this microbiome concept and all the really kind of, you know, exciting and curious literature about that axis between like the microbiome and the gut and the brain, and we know if you get butterflies, like I had to, you know, get on this call with you, which is a visceral reaction, like why do you have an emotional trigger that actually has something to, in the GI-ish you know, um, realm. And I think that, you know, that's a really interesting place to start, but then also how it goes backwards. So if obviously emotions can bring things that give you this visceral reaction, my stomach's tied up in knots, then is or are there properties about the gut health that can also go backwards when it comes to neuropsychiatric stuff or inflammation or cancer? First of all, how do you know about these things? Because I know you do like precision therapy trials and all kinds of cancer treatments. Like, how did you come to that? Well, I think it's a great question. And so I think the key concept is, are bugs potentially drugs, right? And so we have as many bacteria in our body as we do cells, right? And most of the bacteria reside in the gut. Um, bacteria can also reside elsewhere. It resides in the lungs. These can be protective. They can cause disease. As doctors, one of the most common bacterial illnesses we get after an antibiotic that we have to deal with is C. difficile colitis, for example. That's a microbiome issue. Also patients with autoimmune colon diseases. Sometimes you can actually do a fecal transplant. And the goal with that isn't to you know, gross out the resident who's doing it or gross out the patient. It's to actually give good bacteria. And so the idea that the bugs that live within us form a community that can either help prevent disease or some bugs maybe from a bad neighborhood can cause disease such as cancer and how we can understand how to make these changes in those bacteria so they can help us with human health, I think is one of the really interesting areas medicine has taken. And what can we do in our own livelihoods, our own diet, and even probiotic and prebiotic strategies to make sure we optimize gut health, I think is really one of the areas of medicine I'm most keen on. We're starting to see this in GI health, but actually, as you nicely summarized, seeing it in cancer, 
They're actually bacteria that have been found around pancreatic cancers, one of the most common aggressive tumor types we have to fight, that actually eat up all the chemotherapy that you give. And so it's the worst case scenario. So you give a drug like gemcitabine, for example, which is a chemotherapy, and the patient gets all the side effects of that. And the bacteria, right before the chemotherapy hits the pancreatic cancer cells, chews up all the chemotherapy, makes it inert. So it's the worst case scenario, getting all the side effects without the benefit. And so can you actually take out those bacteria? Can you replace them with bacteria that maybe augment your immune response against the cancer? These are the types of things we're, we're trying to investigate and better understand so we can think of bugs as helpful drugs. That is absolutely wild. I had a, a pretty comprehensive uh, you know, talk with Siddhartha Mukherjee of, of Emperor Valmaladies, and we really got into how pancreatic cancer is, you know, can really hone away or basically block off treatments and, you know, basically hijacks a lot of your normal cells, the extracellular matrix, all these things. I did not know that bacteria was yet another mechanism by the delivery being compromised. I don't know, is that something that's mediated in some weird way by the pancreatic cancer or is it just an incidental thing that the bacteria happens to be around? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I mean, uh, you know, in the same way, right, you learn in your biology textbooks in elementary school, right, you have fungus associated with the trees, right, the tree roots, and they kind of have a symbiotic relationship, right? Did the cancer and these bad bacteria that chew up the chemo create a symbiosis, right? And what was the kind of initial event for that? We don't know. But the idea that at some point, right, there were bacteria that were selected to grow around the cancer that like the tree roots of pancreatic cancer, and in so doing, actually facilitate the cancer's growth is really an area that we're trying to better understand. This can happen in other tumor types as well. It's not just pancreatic cancer. Um, it could be in lung cancer, breast cancer, um, skin cancers. And it's not just a cancer story. Um, you mentioned earlier, Sanjay, really nicely, that from some neuroinflammatory diseases, for example, multiple sclerosis, um, one of the associations, and, and it may be a bit controversial, but it's that folks who do a lot of gardening are less likely to get multiple sclerosis. And it's not the actual shoveling or, you know, getting pricked by a rose. It's that there's actually bacteria in the soil, right? And do those bacteria get introduced? That's a theory, right? We don't have a lot of evidence for it. But is it the bacteria that you're exposed to that allow you to not have that bad inflammation? We know this a bit from some of the research that's gone on in asthma and allergies. And so there's this famous uh, immun immunology hypothesis called the hygiene hypothesis. And what it means is we grew up surrounded by bacteria rolling in dirt. Maybe, you know, my kids did that this morning, right? And we were exposed to a lot of pathogens, a lot of worms, things like that before we had sanitation. And our immune system was used to reacting to those foreign pathogens, right? And it was trained to do that over millennia, right? But then over time, we've cleaned everything up. Everything has become sterile, right? And that's good. It helps us with human health. But now the immune system is hyperactive, right? It doesn't know what's foreign, right? And so does this lead to us getting more allergies, more asthma, because now our immune systems interpret other normal proteins as what used to have been, you know, from uh, an immune, immunologic subset that have been weighted towards, you know, fighting bacteria and fungi and, and, and proteasomes and, and helminths and things like that. So could it be that we need to be exposed to certain bacterial communities to avoid autoimmune inflammation as well. And so this is a whole kind of new world. This is kind of the dark matter of, of our own biology. Interesting. So, you know, in, in a sense, you're saying like, you have all the troops, all the army, and, and they're all, you know, over evolution, they've been conditioned to like, you know, have to like serve a role or purpose. And it's kind of that thing, you know, at least we say in the South, you get too many 
you know, guys in a bar, too many men in one place and restless and not enough to do, then like trouble, that's where trouble can happen. So it's, it may be, in a sense, that. You know, I remember my mom, sometimes on day two of summer, I'm watching Arthur, which is still semi-educational, yeah. and she's like, oh, we gotta stop this, like a, an idle brain is a devil's workshop, you know? And, and so yeah. she was like, stay productive. But to your point, when you don't have this propagation to like basically recognize something, you know, we know that sometimes your threshold theoretically can be a little lower to seek something out. It's almost like you're overhyped and overprepared and overready. And then sometimes that thing, if it didn't come from a bacteria or fungus, can be something that just looks just enough like like it to this thing that's just sitting there super excited. They're not getting lazy. They've just been at bay. And then they just go down this cascade of now having an autoimmune, like, you know, property to attack things. And that's a, it's a very interesting concept. There's so much to unpack here. I'm just like, I, I'm trying to like... Uh, triage it all. Because at the beginning, and you touched on it again, you talked about stool transplants. And we know that you do stool transplants like with refractory C. diff, right? It's, it's just seeded it so much that no matter what you do, you just can't make it go away. It's like, no, I got my stake in the ground and this is where I'm at. So you're just like, all right, we just got to, you know, basically uh, fumigate the entire garden and just reseed it with somebody else's stool uh, in this setting. But I've heard too, not just to like recolonize and kind of just redo of everything of sorts, that even in those circumstances that you were talking about, of like maybe increased allergies, increased sinusitis, I've read places that doing a stool transplant, interestingly enough, can actually make that stuff better. Chronic allergies, at least, is, is, is theorized to be better with stool transplant, which kind of fits with what you were saying on saying like, okay, your body got too excited, let's just change, the, you know, again, fumigate the garden and just change the script. And so my first question is, is that a thing? And then if you want to take it to a second level, does maybe even doing a stool transplant, has there any, been any, any evidence or test to see that it may help with neuropsychiatric stress or these like kind of unknown moans and groans and pains that say, oh, it's all in your head, but it's not. And it really, you know, maybe it's an inflammatory disorder and that they, those can get relieved with a stool transplant. Because that to me, it, right there, if you're, if you're somebody that's like, oh, I don't believe the bacteria, like right there, I mean, that, that's just studies that tell you that these very real objective processes got reversed just by having, you know, a total change to the bacteria kind of, you know, uh, growth or, or what exists. Absolutely. So great questions. I think the most we know for sure is we can improve C. difficile colitis, right, with a fecal transplant. There are some suggestions that some inflammatory bowel diseases we can improve with fecal transplant. But one of the interesting things, and you're alluding to this, is um, let's say you do a fecal transplant. Sometimes, for example, you can actually transplant obesity from a donor to the recipient. And so you could have someone who is very skinny, and now you do a fecal transplant, and now that patient not only gets cured of their C. diff, but they could gain 20 pounds. And, and so it turns out a lot of things we attribute to just hosts, just our DNA, just what we eat, may actually relate to the bugs that are in us, right? And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it, especially for gut-directed issues, right? Could it be that the type of bacteria that you harbor make you more likely to you know, crave sweets or, or crave X or Y or Z? And the fact that even sometimes in the process of these stool transplants, you can actually transplant autoimmune diseases like you're mentioning, theoretically, or um, even things like obesity, which are multifactorial, I, I think are really interesting. These are case reports and no one's quite sure, um, but it's plausible. And, and so I think um, we, we are fiddling. It's more than just transplanting the stool, right? You're transplanting a whole ecosystem, right? And sometimes, you know, when you format the hard drive, right, it's, uh, you can get things you don't expect, right? And you're starting from scratch and you're replacing what you had with something that's new. This happens in bone marrow transplants all the time. That's the transplant I think a lot of us are more familiar with in oncology, um, but also organ transplants, right? In which you, um, 
need to have immunosuppression and things like that because you're affecting the immune response. And so stool transplants can make a big difference in, 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 a, in a positive impact, but they can have unknown impacts as well. And that's why it's important to study these for, for not only the diseases we know there's an impact, but also other diseases, because you can transplant things you do not intend to transplant. You could actually potentially make things worse. And it's because right now we just tran uh, you transfer everything over, right? There's no selection. There's no uh, right. picking of the good bacteria, removing the bad bacteria. We're not there yet. And so if you're just transplanting everything, you're transplanting everything. All right. It's like the card games where you like, you can swap one card and keep the rest, or you have to like basically table your whole hand and have a new one. Not necessarily like, you know, that's a gamble because you got to take all of it at once. And the ideal thing Absolutely. is to learn more and be able to have different pieces. I'm just so fascinated listening to you. I literally don't know where to start, but, or, or to continue to unpack. But I guess my next question is, one of the most common things that I hear with patients, whether they have cancer or not, or treatment or not, is like, you know, I got sick, I ended up getting some antibiotics, and I swear, like, ever since, like, I just haven't been the same or felt the same. Oh, do you have some viral, you know, some gastroenteritis, whatever? Yeah, but I'm not sure if it was viral or if it's antibiotic. There is evidence, right, that, like, sometimes even just that an antibiotic course or possibly, I guess, a virus too, but the antibiotic course, those people asking, could that have kind of changed something in my environment? It sounds like the answer is, that is absolutely plausible. That if you're told that it's impossible, that if you had any GI stuff after an antibiotic course, especially long one, it is incorrect to say it's impossible that that may be the kind of introduction or nidus into what maybe like, you know, could have facilitated there afterward. No, absolutely. And, and so the idea that antibiotics are a crude instrument, right, against you're trying to fight a specific bacteria, but you get a lot of friendly fire, right? And um, thinking even about, you know, probiotics and prebiotics, these are all crude instruments. They're not as refined as we would like. And, and so one of the issues and, and one of the important things is antibiotics save lives. If you need oh, an antibiotic because you're really sick, you know, it, the, the benefit is worth the, the potential risk, right? Um, but the idea that, you know, sometimes you could end up with, with things lingering. C. difficile colitis, right, is a classic example. You take out all the bacteria that ideally are bad, but you also take out some of the bacteria that may have been controlling the C. diff, and then it propagates, and then you get the, the syndrome, right? And so I, I think, you know, a lot of this is post-viral or post-bacterial syndromes, right, inflammatory, and you're recovering. But there's no doubt that, in my mind, that there's probably some contribution from the, the friendly fire and losing some of those bacteria that actually are protecting of you. We, we know this, right, um, from gynecologic health, right? Yeast infections, right, often happen after antibiotics. And it's because you disturb that natural balance. And, you know, people talk about, you know, yeast and, um, you know, cranberry juice and, and, and things like that, right, that can help you. Um, yogurts, things like that. And so um, I think these things are very complex systems that we're distilling down into, oh, well, it's a stool transplant or, oh, it's an antibiotic strategy. But the idea is, you know, we're not that nuanced at it yet. The idea is we want to get there so we can be more precise in targeting specific bad bacteria while allowing the good bacteria to help you, you know, do the things that you need to do. No doubt. And to that same point, I it's a, it's a very good question now that I do get with my cancer patients and those on treatment. You know, when we give what's called cytotoxic therapy, right, multi-agent, so it, like, really knocks down, it's attacking things that replicate the fastest, that's the strategy, but our bone marrow also replicates pretty darn fast, so then our white count falls, specifically our neutrophils. And so there's a lot of times when you sometimes have to give what's called empiric antibiotics or, or prophylactic even antibiotics, and prophylactic means I know your counts can be so low that I got to keep you out of, you know, out of trouble by just covering it. Now the question is, 
you have somebody that's you know somewhat immune compromised and they have a cancer and they're getting treatment. I've gotten the question a couple of times and I'm just I love I love questions. Like I just I think it's like the key of life, right? And I and I, and I my patients know that, so that was come with them because I like to learn. What is the merit and is is it at least a reasonable concern that if you're on these prophylactic antibiotics that you're also somehow like changing that protective layer to now possibly exploit something else in the process. And the main question that I'm asking, and I know there's no clear answer, or maybe there is, I don't know. If there is, then I'm gonna to start tomorrow. But sh is it, should they be on probiotics? And I know that the data, again, like you said, and we should just say that, not nothing is binary, right? When I say probiotics, yes or no after antibiotics. Even that is way too broad of a question. But like something like with empiric antibiotics, is there merit to it? And I guess what's the harm of trying if there isn't? Or is it equally harmful? No, it's a great question. And I'm going to go back to a gardening analogy, if that's okay, because I think we'd all relate to it. So, so I think the step back is um, if someone needs prophylactic antibiotics, that means kind of at a population level, we know the risk of a severe infection, right? For someone with a low immune system, maybe it's a hematologic malignancy. And oftentimes they're getting growth factor support, you know, GCSF, things like that. Um, is so high that that risk of fatal infection is worth a prophylactic antibiotic strategy. So I think one point is the benefit of these antibiotics is new. You have to. I think the, the flip side, though, is a probiotic doesn't mean all pro-good biota, right, or pro-bad biota. It's a mix, right? And so it's like if you um, took your garden, right, and you went straight to dirt, right, and you're planting seeds, you don't know are there weeds in, in the seeds you're planting as well, right, that are going to cause issues? Is it all the seeds of the grass that you want? It's a mixture. And that's the thing with probiotics is it's not necessarily a pure mixture of the seeds of grass they necessarily want. There's all sorts of weeds in there as well. And you hopefully it's way more good seed than bad seed. And so that's one of the issues we fundamentally have is probiotics. Well, pro, that's good, right? But pro just means more of, right? It could be good bacteria, bad bacteria, neutral and I think that's one of the, the problems that we deal with. The other um, point and is we introduce bacteria. In, it doesn't factor in what yours is. Like that's the other thing that's like less than ideal. It's like in an ideal world, you would know what your population looks like and what yep. the distribution is and then tailor it. So one, it's pro, but two, you know, it, that same pro cocktail may be good for someone else and not for somebody else. Like it's, it's, it's liabilities both ways. Absolutely. Your um, normal bacteria where you feel good is probably different than mine right? It's probably different than someone else's, right? And so each of us probably have our own set point, right? On what that, just like we each probably have a, a morning routine, right? That's just ours or an evening routine, right? And, and so it's very likely that, um, you know, we have diets that reflect this. And so we probably have a normal state of bacteria, right? And then we're trying to treat everyone the same, right? With antibiotics, which are needed, or probiotics, which may have things that are not going to help you get back to your set point, right? And yeah. so that's, it's, why it's it, maybe not a one size fits all. It's like it's like putting someone everyone on the same diet plan or the same workout plan. Yeah. It's like that's crazy. Like like we know this diet plan works, this plan works, but it's obviously needs to be tailored to you. On the notion though of like the morning routine, I'm curious. I created a big kind of storm on social media that I didn't realize saying I take showers in the morning because you're crazy if you take it at night. And then there was a whole bunch of night showers and like, it's gross, you don't take it in the morning. What are you? Are you a morning or night? I take a shower at least in the morning, but depending on, you know, what I do, I mean, I may take a one at night as well. But I hear it's bad for your flora and bacteria and microbiome of your skin to take showers twice a day. Is that true? I would hope not, but I think, uh, Look at your you skin, know, I think, I think the risk. False. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Clearly false. This is evidence. So, 
So I interrupted you before your second point. So that was one point you said about, you know, not knowing, you know, the gloves is not a glove fit all and all that stuff. And then what was the second half of that, if you can recall? Yeah, it really relates to diet, right? So the question I get most often from my patients, right, is what can I do differently with my cancer diagnosis, either in terms of exertion, which my answer is your body will tell you, do as much as you feel right, get your heart rate up, but don't overdo it, right? Don't be lightheaded. Don't feel like you're going to fall. And what to do with my diet, right? And that's a two-part question. One is, does the sugar fuel the cancer, which is a topic in and of itself? And two is, what does my diet do to the microbiome, right? So one interesting thing, there's a big hematology conference called ASH. And I was taught when I was training, and Sanjay, you were taught when you're training, well, order the neutropenic diet for all your patients. And it's a diet that has low bacteria in it. And I think a lot of us, I never really bought it because I'm like, you're going to go outside in like a week and you're going to suddenly have all this bacteria I'm not so sure that, you know, restricting your diet, you know, now and are we reducing your calories and you lose fresh fruits and things like that, which I actually think are fine, makes a lot of sense. But that was, you know, the dogma, right? And there was a really nice trial um, that was done that was just presented uh, this month um, that showed you don't need to do a neutropenic diet, right? Huh. And so what I've learned is I think we oversteer in medicine on diets. I think maybe low salt and low volume for the cardiovascular patients or maybe in a nephrology diet, you know, low FOS makes sense. But I think in oncology, we way overdo dietary so restrictions, I think, to the detriment of patients. Yeah, it has to be cooked through. You can't have fresh fruit or fresh yeah. vegetables. That's all. That was debunked. We don't need that anymore. Uh, I think many of us kind of felt we never needed it in the first place, right? But uh, yeah, no, you don't need that anymore, uh, which is great because now patients can eat what they want which is important because when you're going through arguably the toughest point in your life with the toughest treatment you've probably ever gotten, the ability to eat the things that you want, you know, there's comfort in that food, right? It's comfort food, right? And so the ability to not have to feel like, oh, I don't want that apple or I can't do this. Now that that's, that's off the plate. Heard and it I here first, that, ladies good. and gentlemen. That is an order that you can delete off the EMR when it comes to like the oncology admissions. That, Oncology diet should just be whatever the patient wants. In my opinion. That should be the only order in DMR. I always felt a little guilty about saying that it's just a peon, you know, fellow or like out recently. I'm like, I think it's fine, you know, like, because, you know, but that's, that's, that's excellent. It's a huge pearl there. I want to back up for a second because I was thinking about it as you were speaking and you said, you know, basically how I, the one that really hit me was like, you can actually transplant obesity with bacteria, you know, and, and how we talked about how they're all, you know, unique constellations. But we also talked about how at the end of the day, there are organisms that have just hung around, much like cockroaches, I'm told, that just survived forever. Like in the same way, they've just kind of been here and coexisting with that fungus root example. It, when someone is born, and I don't know what made me think about this, but when you look at certain demographics or certain cultures or races or whatever it is, you're like, oh, those people are generally this size or this way, and some people are generally this, that, and the other, which of course there's a genetic part of it. There's no, there's no question. But when it relates to GI specifically, how much, and I don't know if this question is answerable, but how much of it is a genetic reason for the constellation or diversity of your microbiome in your gut? Or, and how much of it is actually just the household you're in, the, the house, the city, and everything? And like, is 99% of what your GI constituents, which we're saying can lead to obesity and neuropsychiatric stress and all these other things, is it 99% of the stuff that just really has to do with your environment? Not in the nature, in the nature nurture sense, but now of actually the GI stuff. Or is there a percentage that's actually like predisposed for what your gut environment is going to look like, if that makes sense? No, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, sadly, too many questions in medicine are what are called multifactorial. There's so many different factors in complex systems. But to, to add even one more wrinkle, 
we know that um, folks, like when you're born, right, from mom, if you have a vaginal delivery versus a C-section, the microbiome is completely different. Because right. your route of exit as a, as an infant is different, right? But you've already started and to also, yeah, exactly. And even um, breastfeeding itself, right, introduces some of the initial uh, microbiota, right? And so, if you're you know formula versus breast, um, you know things like that, um, all these may have effects, right? We are no good, bad, or neutral. That, yeah, I still consider all that environmental. Like, is there something actually like polymorphism wise? or genetically that is secreted from the gastric or intestinal contents that will influence the things that you are exposed to? Or is it basically just a, you know, you got what you got, like really that doesn't play much of it and it's so much more of the moment that, what bacteria did you get C-section or not? Like is, is it pretty much all that? Or is there something that's actually being, I guess, synthesized, a peptide, a protein yeah. that also influences? I don't know, I don't know. No, if it's a great question. And it's not a question we have an answer to, right? Could it be that if you have a certain HLA type, you're more likely right. to have a certain predisposition towards certain bacteria exactly. versus others. Um, that that we don't know, um, but we do know that you know how you're born, how you're fed, right? Those initial moments in your life have huge impacts on, on your microbiome. And then, of course, you know as you, you you go on, right? You get you know antibiotics every month, right? Or do, do you not have any ear infections? You had no antibiotics. You know, all these things matter, right? Um, who you play with, you know, are you you're playing in the dirt, right? Are you getting exposed to infections early? And then, you know, depending on what you get exposed to, are you more or less likely to get autoimmune conditions, right? And so these are all questions, you know, folks are, folks are looking at. There are no clear answers, but a lot of this is not kind of wired in your DNA, right, which is at the moment of conception, it may be wired, you know, epigenetically, so to speak, or, you know, bacterially, um, secondarily at the time of your birth and, you know, exit, right, into this world. And that's what's kind of blowing my mind. Like, I always thought about, until I had kids, I always thought nurture was like 99%. I was like, nature, but nurture matters. And then I have kids and I'm like, they're totally different. And obviously they were in the same household and one's extremely driven and the other one's like, ah, oh, like, you know, they're just like, the person I was crazy. So I'm like, okay, there's way more nature than I realized. But what's kind of blowing my mind and I'm, I'm trying to basically like sink my teeth into it philosophically is when we say nurture, this podcast is telling me nurture doesn't just mean the way I thought about it, like imprinting, like duck follows mom and you know what your parents do, you know how they eat, their proportions. That's why, you know, they're generally... You know, there's obesity in some places and not in others is because of the cultural aspect. But really, there's a whole nother element that's arguably, conceivably, even more influential. And that's the nurture in the sense of nothing from your mom or dad, but just the environmental what has gone through your nasal cavity and what has decided and how to just all of a sudden flourish down the hill. It's like when you plant azaleas, you don't know exactly what color they're going to be and all that stuff. Like, that is a, that is a, a nurture squared, uh, which is a, a very interesting concept, and I'm sure... Once that, you know, can of worms, if you will, has been opened, now you're going to look at regions and like air, like how much the humidity is thinner here and though these things can't survive, but here they can and these funguses don't. I mean, you could just start dissecting like crazy what someone is exposed to where in the world and how that may influences. They only have a 7% body fat. They have a 27% in the same diet. It, my mind's getting blown right now to think about how many things that, you know, that can be played around with, I guess, with that concept. Um, to your point about antibiotics, I saw a study, and forgive me for not knowing the, the total you know, degree of merit for it, but something, and it sounded kind of wild, was that they, they split people that had antibiotics in their lifetime, and it was like less than three to five times, or never, between like five to 15, and then above 15, 
and their effects on the chance of cancer. Have you heard that? And, I, and basically it said that in that that if you had antibiotics but you were in a category of like less than 10, I, if I'm not mistaken, it said it was like twice as likely to have cancer. Is that Was that just the way the numbers fell or... Can you talk yeah, about I think, uh, you know, a lot of time with these retrospective studies, right, especially when you're making kind of big yeah. cutoffs, it's just hard to interpret. Um, I think, you know, and also the question is, what's the actionability? What can we tell folks to do with that data, right? And that's why I didn't like the study, because it really... Yeah, it, 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 it really and so my really point is, is the point I make to my cancer patients, which is we have to control what we can control, right? Yeah. And uh, what we can't control is if we have a severe infection, we do antibiotics, we don't do it willy-nilly, right? We, we, you know, do testing, we give appropriate use antibiotics for those patients who need it. And that's the right thing anyway, because we want to prevent resistance, not only for them, but for other patients, right, as well, um, down the line. And then also what we control with our diet, which I think increasingly is really eat what you want. Um, even the, the sugar drives cancer hypothesis has gone 720 degrees, right? Um, and, and if sugar did drive uh, uh, cancer, we would have a, a, co a coincident epidemic of diabetics, right, cancer, and we just don't see that. I mean, in some cancer types, diabetes is a predisposing factor and high sugar may be. But as a general rule, you know, eating that, you know, one candy bar or something like that is not going to uh, make, the, make the difference, right? Um, when we describe that home, what you said, you said, obviously, I think anyone can understand this, that's, that's, you know, maybe not in research like you are, and, and certainly you are more than me. If eating sugar was as strong of a corollary to that's what causes cancer, then you're saying that you would see lines that more or less were con you know, congruent on, okay, causes pancreatic cancer, then diabetics should have just, just an equal amount of pancreatic cancer, and that the people with pancreatic cancer should never be ones that are eating much sugar, like that are only eating much sugar. And you're telling me they are not like in any like solid way, like mirrored, correct? Correct. Yeah, it's, it's a very minor association for certain cancer types, loose, loose. but, but it's, it's, a, it's a lifelong history of it, right? And oftentimes when we see our patients, like I said, they're at the roughest time of their lives. They have certain foods that may still be appetizing to them, right? If they're getting chemotherapy, there may be certain things that just really uh, are, are the only things they want to eat. And I think what we've learned either from this neutropenia study, neutropenic diet study, or really, frankly, the more data we get, is that all these exotic restrictive diets are, are not doing anyone any favors. And, and we're probably uh, facilitating cachexia or weight loss by not letting folks kind of eat what they want, especially when their taste is affected, especially when they're feeling a little down maybe from the treatment. And, and so my view is we want to support the patient with the kinds of foods that make them, you know, feel better, make them feel happy. And um, calories in, in food form are the best way of getting it. It almost sounds like you're saying, and I, and I think I have shared, I feel this way now, if someone were to ask me, that it's almost like a more humbling look or opinion on uh, what we're eating. That it was, it was audacious, brazen, and usually those terms have to do with ignorant. It was usually like audacious, brazen, due to ignorance, irreverent almost to say like this is how we're gonna it's it's this easy and this is what you should and shouldn't do and this is what's gonna happen like we've learned like they always say in the old adages the more you learn the wiser you become the more you realize you don't know we've learned that it is way more complicated than these kind of decades long you know very kind of simple one-dimensional thoughts and ideas we had we've if we've learned anything we learned that that is probably most obtusely the wrong way to do it and so we should at least withdraw those kind of like you know, things because we know enough to know that it's way more complicated. And with that, also, that in general, balance, 
and like and having just kind of like the number of calories and things that are natural is probably more you just err on the side of nature and what is natural if you're unsure is that is that correct you nailed it i, I think all things in moderation and I, I think we oversteer. I think we're over prescriptive on, on, on diets. Um, and, and I get it as a patient. I, that's something I can control. So I wouldn't mind actually getting a prescription for a particular right. diet because that gives me control back. Right. But I think if we put that energy into, you know, aerobic exercise or something like that, because there's only we all have a finite amount of willpower in a day, especially if we're going through something harsh. Right. Um, like our patients are you know, maybe we don't need to be so strict about the diets, right? As long as we're meeting a certain calorie count and we know protein is probably better than carbs and we want to hit a certain calorie number. And then we use that ounce of willpower, whatever unit of willpower there is on a little more aerobic exercise, maybe we're all better off, right? Yeah. Um, but I think, uh, every, you know, things in moderation and um, understanding that sometimes we oversteer on these things, um, you know, it's humbling, right? Because, you know, you and I have probably been ordering neutropenic diets for how many years, right? And we thought we were protecting the patients. We really did. We thought we were protecting you from an infection. And, and we weren't. We were just depriving folks of, you know, the apple that they want or the fruit that they want when maybe that was one of the few things they could taste, right? One of the most depressing things, and I know, you know, you probably have seen this, is when somebody is facing a, a truly just incurable for now like i would say the longer we we live like who knows what will come out but like even in your lifetime i can control the disease but if it's a true incurable stage four setting the amount of pressure i'm seeing sometimes and especially in the comments that come from others that you know maybe it's naive but i believe just care they don't realize like what it may do in stress and in, and in almost like kind of attenuating how maximally somebody can live to say you know you need to do this right you know you shouldn't have sugar it's bad for you right you know you should whatever and, and you were very, like, just edified and gifted, and I honestly have so much respect and admiration for you, especially after learning all the things you did after I met you. I probably would have been more nervous. But you are saying, and that's what, exactly what I've read, so I'm, I'm making sure we're congruent, that if we had learned thing in one thing in, in medicine and oncology, and especially, like, to the comments, well, there's no money in it. It's been studied. It's not that it hasn't been studied because, oh, it's not profitable. We have learned, if we've learned one thing, it's, it's way more complicated. That it would be more erroneous or incorrect to say it's so one-dimensionally modifiable that that would be steering you in the wrong direction. It's not that we don't know, so we're not commenting. It's like, we know we, we probably shouldn't avoid sugar. Like, we know that, or, or certain food types. And I hope anyone listening to this that have felt that pressure, and really, and I mean this, you know, like, in a, in a gentle way, but if somebody is, if you're listening to this and doing this, because you mean the most and want to do the most, like, that's that humility part. It's like, we're trying, we're trying to learn, but I hope just in hearing this, they hear, it's way more complicated. And the stress of trying to do that may be more challenging. Whereas, diet, cardiovascular, I mean, sorry, that cardiovascular fitness, aerobic exercise, bone strengthening stuff, we know what that does for happiness, decreased stress, you know, libido, like, 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 you know, enjoy having sex life, stage four. Like, we, I still want my patients to do all the things they enjoy. And those things I know for a fact help them. And, you know, and maybe, you know, I shouldn't say it's out loud, but sometimes if they, like, want a glass of wine, well, all the doctors told me not to. I'm like, dude, it's your anniversary. Have a glass of wine. Like, you know, those things are just so important. And we know the things we know, which are those are the things that help stress. And ultimately, the thing that's the best for emotional health. Like, there's nothing more valuable because we're all finite and have little blocks, right? So that's a very important point, and I'm glad you share that. With all that said, before you said that, I was wondering, because I'm just so hung up at the beginning, this whole pancreatic cancer has bacteria that's literally eating up the facilitation of a chemotherapy we know that goes in there, and you said it's other tumor types, 
before you said that about how difficult it is to monopolize, monopolize and puppeteer the bacterial you know, microbiome and especially around the tumor. Is there someone whose ears perked up, who has a, you know, a loved one that they really care about or they themselves have cancer? Tell me more about that. What can we tell them to say, because at first I was going to say, well, how do they do that if they want to go at an extra level? And I know the answer is it's not that clear. But how is this being studied? Is it being injected around the tumor to maybe like kind of suck in the chemos? Um, what can someone do if they're interested in, in trying to explore that kind of uh, theory or evidence? Well, I think we don't know the biologic effect of this. This is something that's been observed. It doesn't mean that the dose we give, it doesn't mean it goes to 0%, right? Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And so I think, um, you know, the standard dosing, we know clinically what happens with patients. So by no means to mean to. No, no, no. And um, nobody's going to be able to that. test anyway. Like, I, mean, I wouldn't know where to take you to see if you have that bacteria. So like. Yeah. And so we don't have that testing right. yet. But the idea that not only we could, but could we flip the bacteria right into actually, you know, helping out fight the cancer, right? Is a different species. Can you engineer bacteria? Can you make bugs as drugs? I think. Uh, all these are, are really key. I think, you know, one of the key concepts is um, anytime we're treating a cancer patient, we want them to get back to their normal, right? What their normalcy is, right? And I think a lot of what we do ritualistically is doubling down on abnormalcy, right? Abnormal diets, abnormal restrictions on, on exercise, um, you know, restricting travel, things like that, where there may or may not be a great reason to do so. And for me, I think the more I've learned, it's humbling, right? It's actually every time we've had a study that investigates changing someone's natural behavior versus retaining their natural behavior, it turns out there's no difference. And so why not let folks who are in the toughest time of their life be the people who they are? I just love my, my heart is getting full, like listening, because this is, it has to be one of the reasons we almost celestial, celestial winds got along right off the bat, because I feel the same exact way. You know, a lot of social media, I am not the doctor and I don't, you know, support doctors that just kind of bash or invalidate things, right? Most anything that circulates that may seem incorrect on the surface comes, I believe, again, maybe naively, to some like degree of truth and that, that, that needs to be explored first and validated. And so there's a lot of opinion. This is, I like to go natural, which means like I want to like be free of intervention. And there's definitely a role and a place for that. And if somebody was saying that 10 years ago, maybe they were like would have been more correct than doing a restrictive diet. It's the same reason I teach my residents and med students and everything. I'm like, you don't just go willy-nilly, like, giving diuretics, just like, oh, you have a little edema because our kidneys are super smart. And if they're working, I'm messing up something that has a huge cascade of events, right? And it's the same way with, like, you know, testosterone, I have my own opinions, but, like, that too, like, there's a very delicate cascade there. So I want anyone that does feel a little reserved or hesitant towards, like, modern medicine to feel seen or be heard. We are both sharing, you and I, that there are things that we have like been active rather than passive that we were sure in medicine were like, oh, it works. But if you're hearing that, one, you're validated, right? And two, in us being humbled and learning, we are learning to be more passive because we realize that sense of normalcy or like let it do what it do, like, you know, as the kids say, is actually probably a really good thing. And so what we're doing is we're tailoring our interventions and trying to remove like less is more. That's, that's the concept, I guess, of what I'm trying to yeah. say. Sometimes and more is less. Exactly. Exactly. More is less. And that's what we're realizing, that, that you're putting a strain on something that's otherwise natural and beautiful. And so I hope that's the kind of meat in the middle, like... Please, we validate the fact that these things like may have been like a little haphazard, but the more we've learned, we're more passive. But that doesn't mean, obviously, that there isn't a role for somebody with 
testosterone supplementation like when it's needed do, during the cascade or for like diuresis, et cetera. But everyone's think, normal is very likely to be different. Um, and, and what that normal is and how to best honor it during a patient's journey in, in with their cancer, I, I think is, you know, that's the art of medicine. Yes, 100%. And I, I, that's such a beautiful note to end on, but I do want to ask you like two semi-rapid fire questions. I don't even have the second one, but the first one is this. Acid reflux medications, PPIs. Give me the 90, 120 second, all the questions I get about is it bad to be over on it for over four to six weeks? Is it going to make me have more likely cancer? Is it going to like, like what's, of course, it all is patient specific. What's it, what's, what's your spiel? No, it's, it's a great question. And my view on PPIs is just like antibiotics. They're probably overused, right? And could there be some slightly detrimental consequences to overuse? Absolutely. But before we had PPIs, people would have big ulcers. They'd have, you know, bleeding events. I mean, these are godsend drugs, just like antibiotics are. And so if you need them, you need them. We know if you take them long term, there are risks, you know, in terms of osteoporosis and, you know, uh, different bacterial in the gut. We don't know the long term consequences of that. But if you have acid reflux that's uncontrolled, it's your best alternative. Right. And so sure. I think similar to antibiotics, PPIs, you know, use them judiciously and wisely, um, but not haphazardly. And I think this goes back to the theme of this discussion, which is, you know, everyone's normal is slightly different. And the more we deviate from that, we can create problems. So you should like it's reasonable to not want to be on it chronically just indefinitely if it wasn't for something ulcer this and that this and that maybe gastritis you're taking it that's something that's reasonable go back to your doctor and say hey like can we like balance the merit of this is there any association with like uh that you know of at least with like cancer risk or you know like that kind of stuff or is it is it pretty much very loose yeah um, with the h2 blockers there was a meta-analysis with one of them and actually the, the one that's associated with it is pulled from the market so you can't even get it if you wanted to but broadly and, and we're not even sure if that's not a real really, association right. or not so so my general sense is they they, they don't have a, a strong association with cancer and you know compared to the era when people were having you know gi bleeds right and perforated ulcers um you know in the 80s this is these are godsend drugs but like most drugs you got to use them appropriately. Otherwise, they can have, you know, any drug that has an effect will have a side effect, right? That's just the nature of medicine. And some of the side effects, though they're minor over a long period of time, could add up to a non-zero risk, though at least I haven't seen the cancer risk with PPIs. But, you know, we've seen osteoporosis risk and things like that over time. So I think it's just a discussion to have with your doctor and your normal may be different than my normal. Yeah, I think, I think that'll be the baseline, like, you know, statement, not because it's a cop-out, because it's true. Like, it's just, Everyone's normal is different. Rapid fire question number two, if I may. Is there anything, and we did talk about pancreatic cancer and some amino acid restrictions with Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, but otherwise, is there anything that has a little bit tighter than just, you know, floated theory, association of what you may or may not, it wouldn't hurt to eat more of when it relates to a, a cancer. And of course, it's not going to be any cancer, but prostate. Is there anything off the top of your head where you're like, you know, when they're looking at prostate, it seems like not having red meats or bladder. Is there anything that an active either exclusion or an active introduction may have some merit or pan out in the next couple of years? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, there are some associations with, you know, like charred and fried fish, for example, and gastric cancer. Um, red meat and colon cancer, though that's a very subtle risk. You know, the alcohol and liver cancer, right? And esophageal sure. cancer. Um, so I think. Um, yeah, what about the words with cancer? 
and getting treatment? Yeah. Like, is there anything that it looks like? Because I know some centers look at it incorporating. They're starting to actually add that along with medical marijuana. And, you know, I know people think we're not natural like modern medicine, but we are. What are some of the things being looked at, if you know of any, that when you have the cancer? Yeah, so th there doesn't seem to be uh, any major dietary changes that uh, tend to influence the cancer. There's some rare um, tumors like pancreatic tumor. If it makes a certain hormone, you may want to have a certain diet, but that's 0.1% right. kind of thing. But for the vast majority of patients, um, uh, the, the diet won't have a huge effect. Now, even phytoestrogens, right, for breast cancer, right, um, it, it's controversial. It's gone back and forth. Really? Um, okay, good. Yeah. And so it's, it, it's I, I think the, the, the unfortunate answer is it's complicated. We don't have a great answer for it. And as time goes on, the answers may change. But for the most part, diet is really just about trying to maintain calorie counts. And if you want to have more protein than carb, um, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, also my patients is you want to hit a calorie count. The more protein you use to get there, the better, right? And if you want to go low carb, that's great. But the choice should be you're doing more protein instead. Because if the choice is between nothing and carb, I'll pick carb any day of the week to hit your calorie count to exactly. avoid a weight loss. Exactly. I'm, I'm glad I just kind of almost like stupidly correct. Like I, these are all the things I've been saying, but of course you're the academician that like just knows troves of data. So I'm really glad that it's been supported. I'll like, you know, read it, think about it. I'm obviously evidence-based, but the evidence is coming out so fast. I'm going to steal one more question if I may, I'm sorry. But we know when you look at things that are like Mediterranean diets, right? Versus like, you know, olive oil rich diets versus like paleo diets in certain areas that are almost all grains and fruits because they can't, you know, mass produce things. Is there, uh, and I know there are multiple, I kind of know the answer to this question. By the way, anyone listening, I usually know somewhat the answer to a lot of questions I ask. Somebody asked me that the other day, like, you don't know anything. I'm like, I know what I'm asking, but like, obviously I want to I tease it out. What, which one of those diets, is there any of them that seems to have a strong correlation with a decreased incidence with a certain kind of cancer? And like, I know the ones that do, fish and gastric, you know, in Eastern Asia and all this stuff. But what's one that's like, yeah, that paleo or that fruit and grains or that olive diet, you know, is there anything off the top of your head that kind of, you know, fits or is associated? Yeah, to the best of my knowledge, most of these are, are, are neutral. Now, I know the Mediterranean diet has actually really good cardiovascular outcomes. And some of this may be Mediterranean ancestry. There are these places called blue zones, right, where certain communities live. And it may be the diet is part of their wider kind of, um, you know, dietary plan. Um, and that's probably a component of it. Um, but to my knowledge, you know, paleo diet or Atkins diet or something like that doesn't have drastic effects on, on one's cancer risk. Um, and, and so really, you know, if your normal is I'm doing a paleo diet and that's you, that's your normal and you, you can keep doing it and you keep doing it while you're getting your cancer treatment. If God forbid you have to do that. The key is maintaining the calorie counts and maintaining your normal. Right. Um, and I think um, one of the things we've learned is the more we deviate from folks normal, we're not actually helping as much as we think in our mind. We're actually probably causing issues. But one thing I would say, I would, I would argue, I'm not arguing because obviously there's not what you're talking about, but having a, like an absent fiber diet, I think that is a cause yeah. for a lot of Americans now, like what they're normal, what we're used to. So that, of course, you know, like is, is a very unnatural. So to your point, it needs to be natural things or whatever, but anyone listening if you're not eating stuff with stems or fi skin some fiber in some kind of way, it's like an all-meat diet and all fast-burning calories, yeah. that is going to increase your chance of colon cancer, right? Like, and that's something that somebody, if they're listening, can do pretty yeah. modifiably that will, will help them out. But, you know, obviously that wasn't the question I asked. So No, but uh, it's a good point that, you know, fiber is important and, and, you know, a normal diet, right? The kinds of things our ancestors ate, right, paleo or otherwise, 
um, you know, probably helps us. And so I, I think it's a it's a great point that we want to stay true to our, our ourselves, but also our kind of uh, ancestry, right? right. In, in what we eat. Oh, speaking of that, true to ourselves and ancestry, turmeric. Is that is the is is the kind of debated evidence? I know inflammation it needs to be higher doses, but on cancer and stuff, is that because of anti-inflammatory processes? As as I, as I understand it, they have a whole cascade of stuff that's anti-cytokine. It's not so much due to the gastric uh, or microbiome, correct? It's more just the properties of turmeric itself. Absolutely. If you're going to do turmeric, you're doing it because it's delicious. Um, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, you that's want it on your food. Um, you shouldn't torture yourself with it. Um, is it an antioxidant? Sure. Is vitamin C an antioxidant? Absolutely, right? Linus Pauling thought it'd be the cure of all cancers, right? I wish it would make uh, our infusion centers be a lot more um, easier for our patients, right? If all we had to do is give vitamin C to everybody and right. melt the tumors away, right? And so I, I think it can be part of a, a like a balanced diet. Is it going to have a meaningful impact? I don't know. Then you'd expect cancer incidence in India to be way less. And unfortunately, right, there is cancer in India, right? And and so um, this kind of is the inverse of my diabetic analogy on sugar. And so um, if their effects are going to be very subtle, um, if, it, if you're normal is eating turmeric, then by all means do it. Um, but it, it, it's not a mandate. If you don't have to suffer through a turmeric meal, if uh, that's not you. Yeah, 100%. Sandeep, it has been such an absolute pleasure. I'm like, I'm looking at the clock. I'm like, there's no way it's already been an hour. If anyone, like people like myself, want to just hear you speak, hear more, I know you're on the news a lot and doing media stuff and everything. Is there some focal concentrated place that can actually be able to kind of learn from you and get your updates? Do you have a Twitter handle or especially? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on Twitter, on, tw on Twitter, I'm at, at Patel Oncology, um, and on Mastodon, I'm at at Sandeep S A N D I P. And so, hope to interact with folks online, get their thoughts. We don't have all the answers, but sometimes we have a couple answers. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sandeep. Anything else you want to leave us or, or just be natural? That was your, that was your message. Yeah. Be natural and be, be more humble about like less intervention. Do, do what's normal, right? Absolutely. Marie Kondo our diets a bit, right? Love it. <laughs>